When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Brenton on Tour podcast. That's right. He travels the world running concerts and searches for the best coffee, people, and amazing stories so you don't have to. Pay attention, you're going to learn something for a change. This is a show about all of those things and much, much more. You're blowing my mind right now. This is, I hope someone's recording this. So settle in, pour a cup of amazing coffee. He's a coffee snob, by the way. Crank that ghetto blaster and enjoy the 150,000 ranked podcast in the land. Ah, fake laugh. Hiding real pain. I think that's an exaggeration. It's the Brenton on Tour podcast. Any questions? Here's BD. This is a coffee. If you can't tell, I just made one in anticipation of my guest who looks like he also has coffee going. Those are palm trees in the background, which means one thing and only one thing. It means I'm back on tour. Brenton is actually back on tour. Imagine that doing shows around the land. Let's see if this will actually happen. It feels like it's going to happen. I'm in America. America seems to be doing shows. So we're going to try to do shows. I just rehearsed in Vegas. Show looks good. Bringing it to Miami. We start this week. So we're rehearsing here again. Uh, I came in anticipation of being very, very warm, but it turns out it's very, very cold. Uh, don't let the palm trees fool you. That wind that's kicking in the background for the, everyone watching and listening, uh, that uh, that's a very windy, very, very cold wind. <laughs> and I've been cold in Miami, which I didn't think was going to happen. However, enough about that. The Brenton Unsure Podcast back this week. Uh, still going with the Making It series, uh, which I'm really enjoying doing and learning some, um, get everyone's perspective and their definition of making it. So who better to have on than one of the biggest music producers in the land? Someone who I think has made it, but we'll see what he thinks as we get into it. This, my friends, is Jeff Dalziel. How are you, sir? Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Anytime, man. It's been a little while, but thank you so much for uh, for making the time to come on here. Uh, we won't bore the listener with our techno tech issues that we had today. Instead, I'll just drink coffee. And why don't you tell everybody who you are? Hello, sir. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Um, a little bit about me. I'm just uh, just a guy that makes music every day and produces music. Um, yeah, we'll probably get to that part later about whether I think I've made it or not. Um, but uh, it's, uh, I've had a very good career. Luckily, people have, um, you know, let me play in the sandbox with them and make some great music and hopefully, you know, help change their lives, you know. Um, that's, I mean, I, this is a tough question to answer. Um, I'm just, I just make music every day and I'm thankful for that. And just, I keep getting opportunity after opportunity. And uh, 
So I'll I'll play the uh, I'll play the advocate here for our listeners yeah. at home who aren't watching. But Jeff is a multi-platinum award-winning producer, songwriter, mixer. He's the 2018 and 2019 CCMA Producer of the Year, the 2018 and 2019 CMA Ontario Producer of the Year for Dan Davidson. He's a four-time ACMA winner. Um, geez, the 2019 Juno Award Breakout Group of the Year for Washboard Union, which you can see right there which is very cool good buddies of mine who had done her on here a couple weeks ago which was awesome and uh just all around rad dude and so jeff i don't know if you knew this but i actually had grand designs on being a music producer when i was in high school so at the time my options were you know make a demo which at that time i had to make a demo on a tape uh, this is only 94 so not that long ago i had to make a demo on a tape but i in researching what a music producer does and speaking to my only access to music producers which was in oshawa ontario what was the old studio in oshawa back in like the early quest 90s? yeah it was like quest. quest so i had to go into quest and like oh well you need to make a demo and you need to do this and uh we can help you make a demo but it's all this money and i'm like Ugh. so i go to long mcquade uh, which for our American listeners is like the music center up there, or guitar center, sorry, up there. Yeah. And I get a little like eight channel mixer and a bunch of mics. And I go to a friend of mine's band practice and record them. Hi, Dave McClure. Hi, Machines Way. And I'm like, great, here I am. No one taught me about mixing. No one taught me about anything. And I'm like, and as you can tell by today, I'm not much better at it. But regardless, it's uh, you, you kind of fumble your way through it. I send the demo tape off. I don't hear from Fanshawe College. I don't even get a, we don't want you, just nothing. So then my I switched my option to, I better go into something else. And at that point it was concerts and stuff anyways, which I really want, wanted to learn, which put me at Durham College, which is where we reconnected. So yes. are you still doing Durham College and still teaching there? Um, I, took the, I took the last year off. I, I found it very tough to teach online. And I mean, I just, it's, I'd like teaching just to be there and be involved and try to help a new generation of uh, industry people. But uh, I found it too difficult to do online. I miss it. Um, so no, the last year, uh, last two semesters, I think I'm, I haven't taught. I'd love to go back to but uh, What were you teaching at the, at the school? Cause they, they, they cover production. They cover accounting, uh, yeah, they cover the, all these different things. So, well, that's I think one of the last times I saw you, you came in as a guest speaker for us. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, was like I did. Fifteen thousand yeah. years ago. That's what it feels like now. It feels <laughs> like it, but yeah, yeah. And I still speak to that team, and I actually have a couple of students that have worked with me over the last uh, couple of, of years that just have helped me with like YouTube and trying to kind of push, uh, move me through. I just brought uh, a young protege on uh, called Gemma Gordon, who's awesome, and I had Sarah Kay on before that. So rad people, awesome. Nice. Um, the course I taught was. Um, I, I taught it with another woman, Catherine Ma, who was amazing too. Yep. Uh, okay. we, uh, too. I mean, she's amazing. I'm adequate. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, it was um, basically what we created was uh, the, a music industry in a vacuum, I guess is the best way to look at it. So, so we had our own uh, mini industry with different labels, management companies, promotion, uh, marketing, artwork, production, all that stuff. And so they, and it was more about getting them to understand how to communicate within the industry, uh, uh, also to learn how to respect hierarchy in the industry, like in, where, where you are placement wise in terms of your life after school. And it was basically just in a, an arena that all of the students, second, first and second year students, it was a pretty big, 120 students usually at the time. So 
could split that off into 15 companies, pit them against each other, literally throw hand grenades. And so we just blew up stuff. So they had to argue and fight and just to learn what they're going to deal with when they leave. So we'd rather than make the mistakes in the classroom with us than out there. I guess that's kind of a nutshell how yeah. we designed uh, to be. It, and then of course we had guest people come in and talk. Yeah, it was very much like that when I was there too, but it wasn't it wasn't quite as defined even then. It, it, no. You know, I had a psychology course and I had like yeah. you know, I had the you know, I had all these little courses that had nothing to do with music, which, you know, come to think of it now, uh, after touring around the world so long, uh, psychology, I should have actually doubled down on, (laughs) you know, how often does my office end up with a couch in it and people saying, Oh, I don't know, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We all become psychologists after a while in this business. Call the producer. Uh, I have to show you, you know, it's not, we're not like you're sponsored by anything, but you need to know about this cup. Oh, wait, I got, you know, I saw, I, I've seen them. I got them. I, I can't, I, I travel light. So I don't, I do, I definitely, I'm a big proponent of, of okay. uh, not trying to waste, you know, and, and all that stuff, but that, yeah, it keeps everything. It reminds, it rhymes with remember. Yeah. The Ember, they're good. Remember. Like yeah. Uh, definitely. Cause I, know I uh, guy, so I, I noticed that about that course too. And uh, the one thing that was funny when I went in and would speak at that course, brought back a lot of memories when I, when I went there back when you could actually go to places yep. and going into that, that theater that they have there and everyone's sitting there and there's like 150 kids sitting there and you ask, you know, no one wants to really volunteer information. So you're talking into this void of like, Oh my God, who's here for production? Who's here for, to be a publicist? Who's here to get a handful of questions and everyone's shy, but it reminded me of that, of being there. And we had, you know, some great people come in and speak too. Sarah McLaughlin, all these people were great and came in at the time. Um, young minds. And it was fun to watch, but uh, to my point earlier about wanting to be a producer. So in 94, for me, it was like ones and zeros and I had to take an electronics course and all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff, which was over my head. Yeah. The, the art of the music producer. So I want to start with this question right here is what does a music producer do? I know it has various forms and it's taken various forms since music started being recorded we don't need to go all the way back to the 20s or whatever mm. it is but i'm you know especially in the last couple of years what is your definition and and what is your take on what an actual music producer does well historically and even when i got into it accidentally pretty much um i would say the definition of producer is, is it's, it's in the term i'm there to produce a product uh any way i can um, so with whatever tools I'm given, with the budgets I'm given, it's my job to produce a product. Um, to expand though on that, um, originally the producer was also involved in song choice, song selection, um, and then arrangement, arrangement of that song. And then either, you know, to getting the right musicians to come and perform that if it wasn't a band. Um, and then getting, and then ultimately capturing the best vocal that you can get from the singers or the singer. And that's kind of, in a nutshell, what we're supposed to be doing. Um, the definition of producer is definitely blurred and we can talk more about that as we go here. But, uh, uh, in, in a nutshell, that's to me what a producer does. You come to me, uh, with nothing except talent. And I either have to help you figure out how to write that song, get that song 
get musicians on it, get you singing on it, and get it mixed and done. So, and of course, the uh, every producer has varying degrees of uh, skill sets. Mm -hmm. They do all of those jobs right up to mastering, and some of them can do certain parts, and they like to pass it off. So, and it, like down to the thing of it is our job is to produce a product and that's if we need bands if we need engineers if we need mastering whatever the case it's like that's our job you're a company you want me to you're investing in something here's the money make that product work it's, it's no different than making cheese technically <laughs> right you get you're a professional at making a loaf of milk so you got to know how to do that what ingredients to do and how to time it and all that so it's really is not to equate music with cheese I'm just saying it's some music is cheesy. Oh, yes. Jeff. Yes. That's, that's where I was going with it. Exactly. <laughs> you've got, and you've got a, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on what, where your role is and, and what you personally, as we get to whether you've made it or not um, down the road, but as you're coming through as a young producer, you're kind of taking on everything you can get your hands on a to get experience, but Hey, you need money. You got to get paid. You got to feed, you got to feed yourself and put rent on. So sometimes you got to deal with the cheesy musician, you know, the 65 year old guy that comes in with a, with a, with a strat. And, and he's like, I've got this great song and I'm going to make it. And you're like, all right. Um, I can't tell you that it's terrible. I'm going to try to make it not terrible. And I'm, but I need your money because I got to eat. So, I mean, that's yeah. a fine line to walk in the early phases. And, I'm, and I don't know if that ever ends. But Well, that's... you know, I was fortunate enough not to have to deal that much with that because I came, you know, if you, you can ask me the next question about how I got started, but yeah. um, I can maybe quickly cover it now. It's like, yeah, just with, go, yeah, give us that. I'm a musician first, but I mean, let's rewind to when I was a kid. My father, uh, I come from a musical family. So he, um, he was on he i'm a tour baby so i was born in the u.s in uh, fresno california and then uh he was on the road with robbie robertson actually pr prior to that uh the band he was a side b player like b3 hmm. and then he ended up touring with uh, robbie robertson and that's when i was born on the road then so um musical my dad was very musical obviously so when we back settled back in canada there he's from canada so is my mom um but um he managed bands and so on and so forth. So we always had music gear around and everything. So when it came to music, uh, I got into the industry because I was super accelerated in the electronic part. So I was making music on computers before there was even a Mac. And uh, my father literally, he picked, um, there's a, a famous um, uh, piece of gear that, you know, really kind of re revolutionized music and thinking about computers. It was called the Fairlight, and it was from Australia. Uh, some of the first big artists, like you know, what was um, Sledgehammer was done on that. Peter Gabriel, oh, yeah. uh, yep. huge, and it's like really crappy sampling. But at the time, it was the shit. So uh, my father, they flew my father to pick the actual keyboard that goes in it. So somehow I ended up getting, I had a, a Fairlight in my living room when I was like twelve. So, and then I had. Like, so I'm learning on this stuff that nobody else in the world has. And I was making music on, you remember, like, Weird Science, that movie? Yeah. There's this lap computer with cables coming out of it, and somehow we're, my dad was a musician, so we just played with stuff. And, and so I was making music on computers a long, long, long time ago. So fast forward to uh, how I got into things. Um, I was in a band for years. I was a drummer. 
and I do play other instruments, but uh, I ended up signing a deal with CBS Records when I was younger, um, which turned into Sony, which was a whole other offshoot. Mm -hmm. but, um, I, uh, sorry, I don't want to go off track here. So at the time I was in a band, I was, I was doing a lot of movies and television. So by the time I was, uh, how I got into that was because of the technology and I knew it so well, I ended up um, managing uh, drums and keyboards at Long McQuaid with uh, Sean Marino, who's now head of A&R Warner. I mean, sorry, in, in Toronto or Oshawa? Or Oshawa. Believe it or not. So Sean and I ran, Sean from uh, Universal, he, he's head of uh, A&R, he's part of A&R and head of publishing, whatever. He's Sean Marino. Um, he's got lots of titles. But um, we ran this shop here in Oshawa and we had all these people coming from all over Ontario, they wanted to deal with us because we, Sean knew quite a bit as well. So we kind of understood the technology before most people did. So what we ended up doing was, uh, I ended up more than he, but uh, had a company that like, if you were just that artist that just didn't quite make it, but you had a good name and TV was an avenue where you can go into like guitar players, whatever. And so, but they didn't understand the technology. So. We, I had a little company that um, you could call me and I could put together a system for you, uh, bring it to your studio, hook it all up, lock it to picture, and then show you, you know, this is how you do a drum chase. But because I was a musician and I knew all that stuff, these people would be looking at me and going, can you just uh, come and do that for us? And so right. I just ended up getting called to do all these TVs and TV shows and movies. By the time I was 20, I think I'd done like 200 plus television shows and movies. And uh, so the gear got me into the gig, but the talent I had musically kept me in that game. And so by the time my uh, fast forward to my daughter was born, when I did my last movie, uh, it was like a, a blur, a 20 year blur of movies and TVs. It was pretty crazy. But through that, I ended up meeting, you know, uh, some great people at Sony Music, Lenny DeRose and some people that were like, well, we need to get this guy to fix this. Cause now it became like, well, he knew all that. So I would be the guy that you would call to take all of the music off of old multi-track tape into the computer before there was Pro Tools and put it all back together in the computer and then spit it back out if we wanted to edit. And it's sort of like, again, I got called in because I know how to do that stuff. Yeah. Then there was the musical side that, you know, the head of A&R at Sony eventually one day just said, you know, just come and work with us and come work for us. And then I became a producer. They so they, they, they basically say, come work for us in A&R, but then they have to almost kind of create a position for you and say, well, we don't know exactly what you want. We want you to do, but we just want you to work for us. Kind of. I mean, because like, that's not the first thing I produced. I did produce sure. a lot of music, but sure. uh but it was like, they keep seeing it, they keep hearing it, it just kept popping up. And then Mike Roth one day said, just come, can you want to come work here? And they built a studio, uh, him and Sony Publishing, put together rooms for us to work in. And and uh, it was a blast, man. We just, it was like going into so work. And it's funny music. that you said about Oshawa, because I, you probably sold me either A, my first guitar, or B, uh, my first drums, because my dad was really close with Dave Harrington. Dave. I worked for, yeah, I worked, 
I, in fact, I go so far. I was with Alto Music, which was Mike. Kibler. So Alto, that's where I think Alto is where I got my my right. drums, which became Alan McQuaid, which is where we're getting into the minutia here, everybody. And you won't know any of this, but Dave Harrington was great friends with my dad. And then I was my dad's like, well, my, my son wants to learn how to play guitar. I wanted to learn how to play like Eddie Van Halen, but they handed me an acoustic. So if that was you that handed me an acoustic, you ruined my guitar career because I was like, Eddie Van, Eddie Van Halen doesn't play an acoustic guitar. He plays an electric guitar. <laughs> that would have been probably Pete Lesperance, if you know that. Yeah, it was probably Pete probably or Paulo. Pete. I was yeah. at, or Paulo. I, yeah. was at, I probably would have sold you drums or got something. Yeah, my first drums was like a CB, like a silver CB kit. And so I went, I was like, I my, had my dad take it back. And then I was like, then I got a, a like a, like a, like a, I think it was Long McQuay, but that was a CB. It was like a silver CB kit. That would have been like 89.90. So it might have been Long McQuay. series. And I sold that bitch to you. I that was you. probably you. And I beat the shit out of it. So there you go. Good. So I guess in that, in that, that's funny. There's the world, everybody on listening and watching. Jeff and I's world just got a little bit smaller. smaller. Yeah. Just got a little bit smaller. Um, so you touched on a couple of things there. I'm going to go in two different, there's two different ways we can go here. I've got two different questions that I'm going to hit you with, um, which kind of, you know, what are the biggest changes over the years for a music producer as you, as you got through that? But I'm going to go, let's start with this. Sony says you can come on. Uh, we want you to have a gig with us. And, it, you know, it carves out into whatever. So then at what point did you think that you could actually make a living doing this then? Like you kind of said, okay, I think I got this. Well, I mean, to fact, if I factor in the film stuff, I was making insane money. And so I was okay. literally producing. For film. Canadian film or all film? Canadian film. Okay. Yeah. So it's... Um, I've done my fair share of martial arts movies. Let's just say that. Well, and let me touch. Let me just say for the record that if you're making a ton of money, uh, making a, a Canadian film, then you're the only one making a ton of money making Canadian film. Well, back <laughs> then, it was, more, it was a little more guarded. Like you really, like the tools we don't have. Like we don't have the tools we had today. It's like mm. I'm still using computer stuff, and, and then we have to still use old, yeah, rubber machines. So it's it was a bit of a like we held the keys. Uh, we understood it so it's not that we could you know force a huge price but i, I didn't it, i made a good living i shouldn't have said a ton of money i made a decent living so yeah um i think i'd already like there was no like there was really no conscious decision to start producing music it just sort of kind of accidentally happened right mm -hmm. so um it was a transition so i didn't really feel it was more so when Sony merged with BMG and I didn't have a life anymore because right, I wasn't right. with the company. So that again, I was maybe a bit worried at that point, but then it was like my clients still kept coming and BMG still kept coming to hire me. I just wasn't staff anymore. But there was a time where it's was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fucking make money from this anymore. What am I going to do? So, but, uh, but then, yeah. And, and was there an artist in particular that who, hit after you worked with them and people started talking a little bit more about it like in like directly like i'm not talking later on with this i'm saying in that phase it was like you know that jeff did a great job on our record and we just wanted you know or we just actually you know people know us because of how great that record sounded well you know um sony was an interesting like you're talking about the sony years yeah like, like sort of that thing. it was just sort of like getting you know cutting my teeth as working as a producer making music for other people but uh, yeah but at Sony, I was already working on most of it was not developed. You know, Prozac was a huge one. So mm -hmm. Prozac was a combination of uh, the bass player and guitar player from Philosopher Kings. And I'd done 
quite a bit of stuff for Philosopher Kings in the studio with string arrangements and remixes and, and so on and so forth. And again, nobody really understood what I was doing. Mm -hmm. It was almost like Zoolander. Wait, the, the strings are in the computer? Like it was <laughs> that early on. Um, do you remember that Zoolander bit? Absolutely. Yeah. Wait. Great flick. Uh, and actually that movie came out a lot later and my son, I was dying laughing when I saw it because I witnessed that kind of stuff, not just from them, but everybody. But anyway, so backtrack. So, uh, James and, um, and, um, uh, sorry. Yeah. I forget the, the names of the guys there, but, uh, Jay Levine and James right. McCall, uh, James Bryan. So, uh, there was the two of them and then there was me and the engineer Lenny DeRose. And so, um, we decided to, well, they asked, we want to do this Prozac thing, which was like, so they kind of needed me to come in and be that, that electronic part of things, right? So, and we literally laughed for three weeks solid and had a great time. And then the record, I think, eventually sold 900,000 CDs, not singles, CDs. So Right, uh, back when you sold records. Yeah, and I, that was like the first record. So, I mean, there's your answer. Like, we went yeah. from nothing to whatever um yeah so in keeping with that as i said i was ones and zeros i was i was you know you got to learn how to take apart a board and put it back together that was what they told me at quest and things and i'm like oh man this is if that's what a music producer also has to do i might be screwed you know and at that point there was tape and there was everything and i was in a band at that point and we were we were recording reel to reel at uh, Buzzworks in port perry ontario with buzz and um we were buzz. we were we were learning our I mean, Buzz bought the big board, right, from Long McQuaid. And I worked at, I, 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 Paulo had me in to work as a, you know, in, at school, like a volunteer at Long McQuaid in Oshawa. And they had that big board. And we always used to go in and be like, ah, and I think Buzz was the one who bought it. <laughs> and we recorded our, our, all of them, the stuff that we did as a band uh, in there for the most part. And um, that taught me about producing and stuff or yeah. taught me about you know that that process and the real real tape and all the rest of it so fun stuff but um you know i'll say this because uh, i've often talked about this in panels and stuff um to go back to your first question what does producing mean to me yeah or what does that mean to me okay look i can do it on i can do it here i can do it on my laptop i can do it on my computer the tools are the only thing that's changed throughout my career my 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 the psychology of it or at least the my process has not changed the tools to collect and gather and accrue things have changed have changed but the concept of musicality and arrangement and song picking has not changed for me that's unless i could say it's changed that i've gotten better at it but um so really, would you say the tech like like anything else like the phones change everything change everything changed but what's the biggest the biggest drastic change in music production over the last years that um is very a crucial into making successful records i know it comes down to the song the hit the talent all the rest of it but this is this is a crucial bit that's changed that is needed to you know yeah. make this happen um i would actually because everyone's going sorry and because i see all these bands are going back to real real to real uh, the, the foos went back to real for something bunch of bunch of people are kind of going retro with their recording styles it's to your point it seems to be like it's the same but different so but yeah. what is your what is your biggest what do you notice the most damn that's a hard question <laughs> yeah it's hard because my first reaction is to, to talk about the negative 
things that I see that have changed. It's fine. It's the same. It's the same question. So um, go for it. I will say this, regardless of what people think about music companies and, and uh, record companies and versus the DIY culture now that, so that's changed. So in a good thing, people can, they have tools to do what I do, the physical part, like the actual making it sound. But what are you making sound sound from is what's more important than most. So uh, what's missing for me, what's changed is the lack of filter system. So I'll try to explain that. Right. Um, when I, you know, was in a, I was in a band, um, we didn't know what we were writing. I was writing songs, we were writing whatever, but we'd write our songs, record them, demo them, send them to all the record companies, and then we get a, you know, letter of refusal or whatever they call that, right? Uh, a fuck off letter. Uh, <laughs> I swear. Sorry. Uh, That's a swearing show. It's fine. It is? Okay, good. That's <laughs> fine. Uh, and then, you know, so we go back and we write more songs and we'd send it and we get rejection, let the rejection letters. Uh, and it's like, and you get this out. It's like, well, fuck you. So my, friend, my girlfriend likes it. And so we we just keep doing this, like rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And then one day we got signed to CBS Records. And in hindsight, um, it was constantly reevaluating ourselves as songwriters without even knowing it. We got better at it. But even then, moved towards making the record. Then we started, like, now we have other people telling us what our songs, if they're good or not, or do we need better songs? And, and of course, that was the beginning of where I learned how to be better assessing whether the song is worth spending money on. So that part, so the minute a record company signed an artist, you had either one or a very small team of people that would rip apart. So it's called A&R means artist and repertoire. So mm -hmm. we found the artist because we think they're genius and awesome. And then we need to deal with their repertoire. Now, because of the DIY technology and maybe even uh, A&R people not getting hired in positions, it's more business people maybe, or they just know is A&R at all. It's not really the same thing anymore. So there's nobody going, Brenton, you, your, your music is amazing. You're amazing. Your songs need to be punched in the face. Like nobody will tell you that anymore because you don't, they don't have to tell you. You can just. Well, they're all sensitive now too. Well, I'm just going to put it out then. Screw yeah. it. Well, this is it. So I tell people, I just finished writing a book, which we'll talk about that later. Awesome. I, um, uh, thank God nobody's heard version one of this brain because it took me <laughs> years to learn and then getting the job at Sony and working with Gary Furness, head of publishing and, my, and people just understanding songs better than I did. I learned what makes a song. It's not about going, oh, well, this is a hit song. It's more about going, this is not a hit song, which are it's two completely different things. Mm -hmm. I've written hit songs. I didn't know they were hit songs until they were hit songs. So nobody right. can really predict that. But I can predict that this is not going to work, which there's a lot of flags for that. And I guess that's what I've learned. So unfortunately, because of the DI technology, fortunately, people can make great product. Unfortunately, there's nobody that's going to stop them. And what's scary for me for that is I've heard a lot of amazing artists that we know today that if you'd heard what they had, they wouldn't be the artist you know today. Oh, if sure. Us. We're in the way to go. But are labels still hiring A and R? Like, okay, so I got to still think different. the major labels still have somebody 
policing that or is it really just like hey we we're going to develop you but you can put out whatever you want because well, i'm I, seeing a lot of artists talk about well, i'm in control i'm I I, yeah well i don't want to get in trouble because i know sure people and they're, they're friends but they're not like the like mike roth i love you mike if you're listening to this you were an asshole thank you you weren't really an asshole to me but then you weren't even an asshole you were just right. very guarded and very serious about the art of rock songs and i don't know if that's being looked at enough anymore it's well a, how do you respect how do you as a producer then respect the vision of the artist and then where you think it should go because i gotta imagine and we, there's countless stories of pissing matches between artists and producers i mean geez let's yeah. just watch the metallica documentary sure. with sure. <laughs> you know or whatever but there's how do you go and it, it's like a seven and if you just do two things to the pre-chorus it's going to be a 10. no i don't want to it's my vision right well we call this the jedi mind trick and it's okay. uh, this is these are not the chords you're looking for these are not the chords. <laughs> uh <laughs> It's, you know, that's a, I might have that fight tomorrow. So I don't really, I can't say I haven't had it. Sure. Um, it's not really a fight. Sometimes it can be a fight. It literally is project dependent. And I've been pretty lucky that most of the people that end up with me as a producer, trust me. And I'm, and they know I'm more about trying things. I'm not the iron fist of like, it's gotta be this, but, uh, but I'm slowly trying to make their song better. And now I'm at a point where I would just, if the song isn't there and everybody but me keeps telling me I'm wrong, then I just, I give them somebody else's phone number to produce. So it's fine. Because I remember talking to Garth Richardson about this a little while ago, like maybe a couple of years ago, last year or something. And, um, you know, pans will come in when they know your resume. And they go, well, I want it to sound like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, or I want it to sound like the Rage Against the Machine record you did. And, <laughs> Garth's response was something along the lines of then go join Rage Against the Machine <laughs> or something say, like that. I say that kind of shit all the time and maybe I'll get in trouble, but it's like if, you know, if people go, I want it to be this, this, and this. We could talk about my theory of production a bit throughout this. Because uh, there's got to be a vision from the artist and yourself that has to come together. Right? For sure. Um, when people go, I want it to sound like James Barker, then I'll just figure out how to reach out to James Barker and ask him to work on his stuff with him. I want to do the song. So there is, if somebody's like, I want to do a podcast, just like Brent and Donnelly. Well, there are no one's ever podcast. said, by the way. <laughs> um, there already is a you, so why bother? Right. I've got a great idea for podcasts. It's going to look and sound exactly like Joe Rogan. But why? It's like, do something different. Uh, you can only get away with so many clones of things. So I'm always trying to pull out the uniqueness of the artist which is the other part of my job is to listen and talk and have the conversations to go, how do I make something unique for the artist, but it still feels like it belongs in the world that we're living in right now. And then, you know, once we get established some success, maybe we can push the boundaries and take it to where people aren't doing it like that at all, but still we do have to play the game a little bit. And some artists, um, I don't know, some artists, I just, if they're not willing to experiment a little bit with me and be outside the box, like, um, I'm, I'm just, I can pass on the job. That's kind of really, it. and it starts with songs, songs first. And then if it starts to get really like, I want it to be like this, then I go, well, why did you hire me? So rather than have yeah. that conversation, you have to be an asshole, but it's like, I, oh, okay. So that's interesting to me because I, you, you touched on it there a second ago. And I, one of the biggest things that I 
struggle with and I've always struggled with from a musician or from a, uh, sorry, from a music fan listening to bands. Um, bands that make records based on trends. Now I understand that there's, and don't punch, don't come through the screen and punch me in the face no, or anything. I understand. But I, understand, I understand that there is a method to certain styles of music. So, hey, you know, we're making a country record. We have to, in my brain, it's like, we have to have this kind of song or the artist at least in their head probably comes in going, I have to have one of these kind of songs. And then I also have to have one of these kind of songs and I have to have one of these kind of songs. And um, I'm noticing a we in all genres, especially, but um, there is, there, there's not a lot of uh, effort to push the agenda. It's sort of like, that's the formula that's working. So we're going to go with that formula. I'm not, I, I choose even if it's financially detrimental, I don't live in that world. I just right. refuse to. And we talked about washboard. Who do they sound like? Well, nobody. Right. But it, when it came to me, it sounded like it was desperately trying to sound like everything else. And so I would just talk to the guys and learn a bit about their lives and what they liked in music. And then I just made music <clears throat> around them that look that sounds like they look and are. Yeah. And, and, to be fair, that comes with risk. Sure. So not all thing I'm going to produce is going to have that success. It has to have a team. But that's challenging the listener, which what which me as a music fan, I'm about. I'm like, I want you to challenge me, you know, as a listener. And I'll decide whether I'm in or not. Yeah. I'm more in, like, I'm in a, part, a point in my life where I'm always trying to create something unique. My, my manager used to get so mad on the phone. I would say, I want it to be uniquely homogenous. It's like, stop saying that. And so now it's like, I want things to be uniquely viable. So oh, yeah. I don't just... want to make music that alienates the artists from the world. Sure. I want to make their version of the music that people are consuming. And so I don't do the XYZ tricks. Which that... a lot of, frankly, a lot are guilty of doing now. And I, I get frustrated when I hear a band that, you know, you have an opportunity here to really go for it. Oh, there's that chorus that sounds like Katy Perry, even though it's, or not Katy, as an example, there's that chorus that, you know, right now there's a trend I'm listening to all these bands and they're all, <laughs> I don't want to sound old, but it's like, it's, oh, they're all sounding the same. That's not what I mean per se, but there is a certain like cadence to certain parts of verses now that are exactly alike and it's you have to have that or it's not going to work and dare i say i'm just going to go for it here dare i say like a band like papa roach for instance um that band killer live consistently live all the time put out a brand new song and i'm like here we go and then it's like there's that there's that verse that sounds like machine gun kelly that sounds like this that sounds like that that sounds like these pronounced verbs and vowels that they're all doing now and i'm like do we really need it and then every hit on the radio has it so i'm like okay i guess, I guess we got i guess you that's what you're doing but then a band like big rec goes no 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 and they put out just they challenge you all the time to listen to every single thing in your headphone uh, our lady peace just did it moist are doing it and, and that isn't, isn't even a knock on like papa roach for instance i just i'm in america i'm hearing it all the time and i'm like oh new you know I know what you're saying. So, I, and like I said, what, that's what I meant earlier. My take on producing comes with risk because mm -hmm. 
I want to take those chances. If like if I work with Ian again, like we've done stuff together, then I'm gonna like how do we change it up? But I understand how scary it is for people to change and how like when you have a comfort zone, that's why people stay in disastrous relationships for too long or yeah. their financial situation too long. They just they're comfortable where they're at and they don't want to rock the boat. Well, if you're not going to rock the boat, you're not going to be remembered in this industry. You'll just be like, unless you're the innovator of something, you're just, um, you know, you're just an, a reasonable fact. It doesn't mean it's bad. It's just, it's not going to create new. Couple more for you. A couple more for you here. Um, what do you think and making it is for a producer and not you? What do you think as a definition as a producer in general would be trying to aim to strive for to quote unquote make it is it the catalog or is it feeding yourself or something different i guess well, i was going to say it's kind of like that depends on the definition of making it really well that's why we're here now <laughs> yeah <laughs> but if you're if you're if there's 10 producers sitting in a circle you're going to get 10 different answers but there's probably one sure. one or two common answers in there and what do you think that that would be as a producer in general well i guess truly making it in any uh job this is no different as if i can make uh use these instruments and stuff to put coffee in there and into my head mm -hmm. and food and pay bills um then i've made it Right. And that's, and I think at that point, if you, it all depends on what your motives are. So if you're, if your definition of making it is being able to survive and not be too stressed about life in terms of financial stuff, and then you've made it. So you can make as much at making music as you would working at Taco Bell. If you can pay your bills and it's working, then you've made it. Now, if making it means like, you're going to be the tour manager for one of my acts in the US. No, I haven't fucking made it yet at all. And the only way to do that is to leave this country for me. So which I refuse to do. So I'm good with where I'm at. Am I going to make gazillions of dollars? That to me is not what making it is making it is for me is I get I can pay my bills. And I can exact my will with the artist like together mm -hmm. to create a product that people go. Hmm, that's pretty fucking cool. Oh, and in fact, I start to hear, if I start to hear people copying what we've done, which we do, I do here, I go, yeah, okay, then people are acknowledging what I've done. Maybe not even on purpose, but I've created sort of a tiny bit of a trend in the world that's, you know, and I'm in Canada, so that's even harder, right. but I've done it. So, um, you've, yeah, you've but I made minute i could pay my bills making music you've almost Damn you've it. almost answered the final question on this thing but if we look at your resume here as i said but i've put up on the screen here you look at the awards you know there's a juno our version of the grammys per se as you see yep. uh there's a cma ontario award uh and all yeah. the things that, that you've done so if i put those up on the screen and someone watching this thinks that you've made it my question to you has Diesel made it? Okay. Diesel made it when he got his first movie on the screen. But that was a long time ago. 
and it, I've been able to kind of, again, pay my bills. So, but making it for me is a moving target. And so what I've, I think, I don't know, it's like now I start to get, I'm really happy when with artists that I'm working with get acknowledged for who they are. Like they win their awards for album of the year or artist of the year or nominated. I kind of feel like now I feel like, oh, now I've made it. I'm actually helping other people make it. But it's still a moving target. And so for me to, it never, I guess it never sleeps. It's like, well, do I want bigger success or am I happy here? And, you know, every once in a while, I'm like, you know what, I should just, I should go down to Nashville and make me, no, I don't want to go to Nashville. I want to stay here because I like it here. And I'm like, okay, I could make, if I went after some bigger stuff in the U.S., um, I could maybe make three times what I'm making. But uh, I'm kind of comfy here. I don't really want to leave my house or my country. My my daughter's here. My family's here. Mm-hmm. So, well, you got doctor. your daughter, your family. Yeah. Uh, so I got to made it with. I, none of that would have happened mm-hmm. had I not made it to some degree. Right. So my definition. Yes, some asshole that makes speakers move, and I got lucky. So did I make it? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, kinda ish. Uh, you know, people go, "You're a great producer." Look, I'm no, I'm merely adequate to me. And I, I guess, I guess maybe I'll finally make it when I just stop. I feel like I'm an imposter syndrome, which I think is a good thing, because hmm. it always challenges me to be better. And it's like I'm, sw- dude. I go watch a movie now. If I have a song in a movie, I'm sweating. Oh yeah. Because I'm listening to someone who worked on this. Like it was like I don't want to make it. <laughs> it's terrible. I know it's me, but I'm sweating. I'm sweating because I think everybody in the theater knows I did that. It's like. I'm so worried about being good at what I do. Mm. I, I don't want to lose that. So I never want to believe that. You're, you, you touch on in a funny bit because I, I don't ever want to work in film or TV or anything like that. When I go to a concert now, I'm looking going, you know, if I go just as an observer, I'm like, okay, what have they done for security? All right. So where is everyone positioned? What time are we? Okay. They're, it looks like they're five minutes behind. What's going on? Like, you know, my brain goes into there and I want to be able to enjoy movie, movies and film uh, and music uh, in an organic way. So yeah, I, I, my, my music producer, uh, cap has been taken off and wanting to do that, but uh, certainly enjoy it. So, uh, before I let you get out of here, you have a new book coming out. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? I don't really, I mean, there's a, all I have is a title and 10 chapters written. So <clears throat> it's called top 10 and homeless, which is not negative. It's all fun stuff. Uh, top 10 and homeless. <laughs> this is the, this is the Canadian way to uh, not, not, not <clears throat> enough money for a cab and too famous for the bus. That's that's what we're talking about here. <laughs> right. I just changed the perspective, you know. You know, you've made it for three hundred thousand dollar vehicles picking you up, which is what a bus costs. That's right. But um and we want tour buses. What's the difference? Yeah. Uh fuck, what was I gonna yeah, say? Yeah, talking about the button with the book, ten chapters, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. The first chapter is called the narcissism. So use that as an <laughs> there we go. uh I haven't chosen what to do with it. Um I'm not quite sure. I already so can't wait to read it. There's no real release date on that. Whether we give it away, um, it was originally written to kind of help artists. So maybe I, we live in a world where people share all that stuff anyway. So Everything's worth yeah. something, my friend. Don't give it away. No, no, no. I mean, not give it away, but use it as a promotional tool sure. for making some podcast stuff to help people and yeah. raise some money. So, yeah, it's a little premature to say when that's coming out, but it's done. So... Um, it's been done for quite a while. And if you talk to some of my students, it's become quite of a joke. They're like, so when's the book coming out? So, well, I don't know, soon. But uh, 
there's that. That answer your question. That, my friends, is a very excellent Chef Dalziel. Producer extraordinaire who I believe has made it. Look at all these awards. We got uh, a Juno. We got the uh, CMAs. You've got so many other things. You've got a roster of artists that love working with you and that you've worked with, uh, a couple of which I've had on here with Nice Horse and Washboard Union. So kudos to you, my friend. Thank you so much for making the time today. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, you can, uh, my website's jeffdalzielofficial.com and then all my, everything is on there at the bottom of every page, my in Instagram, it's all there. Great. So it's a one-stop shop. Um, when are you going to be in town? I am not, I'm in America until the 15th and then I've apparently got across Canada too happening in April. <gasps> Fingers crossed. We'll see you. Is there a Toronto date? Uh, Maybe. That I've seen, there's an, I got a couple of Ontario things happening, so, um, well, as soon as I know, I'll let you know. So. We're going to get together and have coffee. We're going to yeah, drink coffee. We're going to have lots of coffee. So, Jeff Delziel, thank you so thank much, you. my friend, uh, for being a mentor and uh, being a, a great friend. And thank you so much for making the time today. That is the Brenton on Tour podcast for another week. Uh, join me over at BrentonOnTour.com, wherever you get your pods uh, in your ears and all the rest of it. Um, feel free to uh, leave an opinion on, on under this video, but what you think your definition of making it is uh, join me on YouTube, join me everywhere, including the Dean Blundell network. Thank you everybody. That is the Brenton on tour podcast for another week. We'll see you next week. Someone will be here. Someone might've made it. We'll see what the, your definition is and what theirs is. Thanks everybody. Hey listeners, I'm Christy and I'm Melissa and this is Buried Motives where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back and that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.